Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. And I'm here with Paul Edelman. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Looking forward to talking with you. Paul helps individuals, families, and their advisors be more effective in achieving their goals. He earned his PhD in psychology at Harvard, where his research and teaching focused on group, family, and board dynamics. Prior to coaching and consulting, he served as an internal organization development consultant at AT&T and VP of a successful tech startup. He's also experienced as an angel investor, board chair, and advisory board member. And we got connected through a guest who was on the show previously, which is always a really fun way to meet new folks to to come on. You are well-versed in the family office space, which we'll get into. But I'm curious, given your background and what I see and, and some of the snooping I did on LinkedIn, how did you find yourself in in this space, given your original educational focus? Yeah, well, there were a number of seeds that were planted along the way. First of all, I grew up in a family business. And then I was what Jim Grubman calls an immigrant to the land of wealth. Because when I was born, my family was living in Levittown, which was a, a community, a plant community built for returning GIs after World War II. And uh, it was pretty modest. But my parents had some success with their business. And we moved closer to their store. And we ended up in Garden City, which was kind of a bedroom community for Wall Street. So one of my first friends that I made in fourth grade turned out his grandfather had founded a Fortune 500 company. And through that friendship, I I was introduced to a whole different world from what I had spent the first eight years of my life in. So that kind of was an initial seed. And then later on, I had occasion to have as a client a very successful hedge fund. 
with a uh, founder CEO who became quite a well-known, visible figure and had very strong ideas about how to do things. And I observed the impact that had on people around him, including uh, one of his sons who worked in the business. In fact, his son for a time ran the family office. And that was, I was asked to do some things for the family office. And that was my first exposure to the family office concept. Based on my earlier experience with family businesses, thought about the position of this person. And I thought to myself, must be really hard to grow up in the shadow of such a famous and forceful figure. And I thought, you know, it'd be natural to wonder every day, who would I be were it not for the accident of my birth? And I thought there must be other people who experience the same sort of thing. And that kind of drew me to this field. And when I began doing coaching, I started coaching early in my career, but then there was a period where I got into doing consulting and consulting around talent acquisition and so on. But I got back to my roots in in coaching and I decided to get certified through the International Coach Federation. And in that training, they talk about finding a niche. And I thought to myself, you know, this would be an interesting niche to get in. And so I began exploring it and I came across Jim Grubman and and he's become a mentor to me. And so that's kind of the, uh, the story in a nutshell. Well, why don't we jump right in? And one of the things that we talk about a lot on the show is how can you help these next gens carve out an identity independent of the wealth and not have it just be their entire being? Because it seems like that's no way to live long term. And, and it's a big challenge because, to your point, that wealth and affluence creates huge opportunity for them, but it can become dominating. And there needs to be some type, there needs to be a period of of self-identification and self-awareness. And how do you do that effectively? Yeah. So it requires that people have some space to explore who they are, who they want to be. So it's a challenge for the, the parents to provide that kind of space. It's interesting when people have one goal, it's relatively straightforward to accomplish that goal. For example, some families, parents have the goal of making life easier for their kids. You know, they'd like their kids to grow up and have things not as hard as as what it was for them. If that's the only thing they want to do, you know, they can shower the children with money and make their life easy for them and so on. But there's a downside to that. And parents often recognize that. And so they, they might come up with another goal. It says, well, we don't want our kids to be spoiled. But the minute you have two goals side by side, there's the potential for them to come into conflict. So in this ca- in the case of your question, parents often have certain notions about legacy. You know, they have a sense of what kind of family we are and how we would like it to be and how we would like our kids to be and so on. They want to pass on some of those values and traditions and so on. But if that's the only thing in their mind, it may compromise their offspring in certain ways. Some parents will recognize that it's desirable for their offspring to grow up with a sense of their own identity and a sense of self-confidence, of realistic self-confidence in their own ability to make decisions and solve problems. One example that comes to mind is I once spoke to a woman who had been very successful in business and her son was about to go off to college. And she said, you know, I'm afraid that his friends will take advantage of him. And I wonder what can I do to protect him 
from friends who come up and ask him for money or whatever. And my answer to her was, you know, dealing with these friends is a specific instance of the general category of situations in which a person needs to exercise good judgment and make sound decisions. So in a sense, beginning at college is a little late to start inculcating that. And likewise, helping children to develop a sense of their own identity shouldn't wait too long. So parents need to give the kids the opportunity to find things that they like. And key to that is oftentimes just exposing them to a variety of different things and asking them questions about what appeals to them or doesn't appeal to them and why and so on. And then allowing them to kind of follow their own voice. So we talked before we went live about this next gen cohort that you work with. Obviously, this is a piece of that. What are you seeing other than this kind of self-identification issue as one of the more pressing challenges facing the next-gen leadership community today? Yeah, so one thing is that parents are living longer, healthier lives than ever. And so the classic example of this is his Prince Charles. You know, the reins were just handed to him in his 70s. He's taken over as king. And so this kind of Prince Charles effect is occurring in a lot of families today, where the current generation retains their position as principal decision makers for many years. And so it's hard for the offspring to find a, a place in the business and in the family where they can have the opportunity to make important decisions. So in this group that I run, we have young people from and when I say young people, they range in age from about 27 to 32, who come from families, each from their own different family, where there's substantial wealth and a variety of business interests. And they uh, are trying to find opportunities for themselves in those families where they can learn and grow. And it's a little different in each case, depending on how many siblings there are and so on and the orientation of the parents. But the hard thing is to really have a laboratory in which they can practice solving problems and making decisions. I think your point, the earlier one you made, is a really good one. We're facing an odd time where people are living much longer, often longer than anyone anticipated. And we have family enterprises, be they family offices or family businesses that have multiple generations working side by side, sometimes three or four for the first time ever in history. Yes. There's any number of ways to manage it, but what's best practices there? If you are in that situation, how do you manage it? Do you bring in outside resources? Do you have consultants? What have you seen as kind of the most effective means to work through some of those challenges? Yeah, well, every family, of course, is different. In general, where families have difficulty, it's typically the result of some challenges around collaborative decision-making. So when you have multiple generations working side by side, everybody has their own needs, interests, goals, and so on. And it's hard to develop solutions that integrate those various needs. There's a tendency in many families for the decision-making to be sort of top-down. But when the family gets that complex, when there are multiple branches and multiple generations it's impossible for those at the top to have all the information necessary to make good decisions for all the others in the system. You know, when you think about decision-making, 
all other things being equal, the more information that we have, the better the quality of the decisions that we'll make. And so if you're, let's say, the patriarch or the matriarch of a complex extended family and business together, you can't possibly know everything you need to know to make good decisions across all those generations. So the term governance is often used to talk about kind of a systematic approach to decision-making where you create structures for bringing people together in a forum where they can work together to make decisions. And so this is not something that families typically grow up knowing how to do. So it has spurred a kind of an industry of coaches and consultants who come in and help families to develop the appropriate structures for governance or for decision-making so that they can do things in a the more systematic way that's required with the higher level of complexity. So they may create structures like family councils or family boards, family assemblies to bring everybody together once or twice a year, that sort of thing. The thing that I, I think is key in doing this is that there's two approaches that can be taken to doing this. One is what I would call an expert approach. And the other is more of a developmental approach. In the expert approach, somebody comes in and oftentimes it's based on a kind of normative model. So they say, you know, we've, we've looked at, at hundreds of families and here are the best practices. And this is what families like yours should do. The problem with that, from my point of view, is that anytime you tell people what they should do, you're fostering a kind of dependence on yourself as the outside expert. And the alternative to that, the more developmental approach, asks the question, okay, what would it take for these people in this family to figure this out for themselves? And from my point of view, what it takes is a systematic approach to decision-making that everyone learns to follow. And ideally, that's guided by some sort of a model. So one of the things that I've found is that people who are very effective in their lives, business or in their personal lives, they tend to at least implicitly follow some sort of a model for decision-making. At the same time, they may follow their model inconsistently. So let me try to make clear what I'm saying. So an example of a model, there was a fellow named Peter Senge who wrote a, a book about learning organizations years ago. And he had this model. He, he talked about the principle of creative tension. He said, basically, you know, you can analyze where you are today, and then you can create a picture or a vision of where you want to be in the future. And it's like you nailed two nails into a board and you're stretching a rubber band between them and you're creating a pull from where you are today that's pulling in the direction of where you want to be in the future. So that can be a, a useful model. And a lot of people follow that sort of model. I've heard it said about models, though, you, I'm starting to see this more and more at conferences. People put up a quote, I'm not sure even who it's attributed to, but they quote goes something like this, every model is wrong but some are useful. You're nodding. I assume you may have heard this before. Personally, I prefer a different formulation. I would say that every model is incomplete, but some are useful. And so in Senge's model, for example, he talks about what the family wants or what the organization wants as a kind of desired future state. Well, that's a kind of positive vision of the future. It turns out, and behavioral people who study behavioral finance have come to find that people are motivated even more strongly 
by what they don't want. There's a kind of, I think they call it loss aversion bias or something like that, where people would sooner take steps to protect themselves against a small loss than to take the opportunity to make a big gain. <laughs> so it's important that models be complete enough for the purpose that you're using them for. So when I work with families, I have a model in mind that begins with understanding the context or the situation. And I think of that at two levels. I think of it in terms of the external context and the internal context. So by external context, I mean everything that surrounds the family. So there was a Family Firm Institute conference a month or so ago at MIT, and there was a lot of talk about the changing world environment and how this impinges on family businesses, you know, the, the emphasis on the environmental sustainability and social justice and so on. And this is part of the arena in which family businesses need to operate. The Internal context has to do with what you were talking about earlier when you say, well, we've got four generations trying to work side by side and this many branches and these are what other people are like and so on. So that you have to understand all of that as a starting point. Then the next step in my model has to do with outcomes. I, I call it the co-impact model. So C is for context, O is for outcomes. And that includes positive outcomes. That is to say what people want for themselves or for others or for the family, and also negative outcomes. That is, what is it that they want to avoid? And, and I find that that's a piece that's often overlooked. You know, we tend to talk about the positive in a more complete way. It's rare for the negative side of things to be systematically explored, especially today there's talk about positive psychology. And I, I think the problem with that is that sometimes they, they miss the uh, importance of some of these negative motivators as well. But Anyway, so you figure out what people want and don't want, and you try to integrate that information. And then the IMP in my model stands for implications. So that has implications for what you need to do to accomplish it. And ultimately, that points in the way, in the direction of, of action or what you need to do. And of course, when you think about action, there are multiple possibilities. And in the best case, people consider the pros and cons or the likely consequences of a variety of different choices of action. And from that consideration, they're able to arrive at what ultimately might be the best possible solution for them. This kind of approach of choosing from alternatives is different than something called the advocacy approach. Sometimes people will say, well, we should do it this way. And everybody will then debate, well, should we or shouldn't we? But the problem with that is it, it's focused on a single solution. So so as part of a, an effective model, you want to try to create multiple possibilities. So you end up with the, uh, the possibility of, come, let's say you have alternatives A, B, and C. You come up with the possibility of generating a fourth alternative D that in some ways is better than A, B, and C because it combines the best parts of them and minimizes the weaknesses of them. So anyway, this kind of model-based decision-making is something that I think coaches increasingly will use with families to inculcate in the family or you know to develop within the family the kinds of skills that will enable a family to be more self-sufficient over time so for example instead of saying you need a family constitution and you should have a family council i might say to a family so what structures do you have in place today and what is it that you're anticipating that you'll 
need to be able to do in the future or how has things evolved such that you'll need to be able to do things in the future that even either haven't had to do before or haven't been able to do before. And then you can say, all right, so what's missing that makes it hard for you to do that? And what, if it were present, would make it easier for you to do that? And if you ask them questions like that, I believe that most families could invent their own structures and they, you know, they call it whatever they want. I mean, they call it a family council. They could call it the Cub Scouts. <laughs> it doesn't matter what they call it. The point is that, that they've gone through a systematic process to analyze their situation and figure out what it would take to make it easier for them to accomplish their goals. And I think in the long run, that will stand the family in much better stead than having an expert come in and say, hey, this is the way we do it with all, of our, all the families we work with. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. And is that related to this? We talked about, you know, Jim Grubman's work about this new wealth paradigm that's emerging 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, etc., do you think that's part of what this changing relationship is between advisors and families going on in today's climate? Yeah. So I haven't heard Jim put it this way, and I don't know that he would exactly, but here's how I think about it. So in Wealth 2.0, the sort of the, I don't know how to put it, the, the most commonly talked about thing is the notion of the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves prophecy. And it got to the point where it was de rigueur. In other words, it was almost required or expected that if you were going to make a presentation about family wealth, that you had to start out by citing the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves prophecy that, you know, basically great fortunes are made and lost in three generations. And it was as if, as if to say that that's your destiny. And I suppose not to say that it can't be avoided. The message was hire us as your advisors and we will prevent that from happening to you. So this is what, what I would call fear-based selling. And one reason I think it was so prevalent is because it was effective. I mean, you know, selling on the basis of fear is a kind of tried and true method. But we know that fear interferes with people's ability to think clearly. I mean, any kind of unpleasant feeling has a disruptive effect on people's ability to think things through for themselves. and so. The counterpart to this fear-based selling was that it reinforced a hierarchical relationship between the advisor and the family being advised. Basically said, and I hate to say this, but this is the same strategy that's used by many cults. Cult leaders will say, you know, the world is coming to an end and only I know the secret of how to prevent that or to spare you from that, so follow me. And the psychological bargain that people make when they join a cult is that they're trading off, well, what they're getting is a reduction in anxiety. But what they trade off in exchange for that is a, a reduction in their own autonomy in thinking and in action. Last night, the Ultra High Net Worth Institute, a kind of think tank for this field, had a, a presentation about disinformation 
I forget the catchy title for the presentation. It was, but it was a very stimulating discussion. And the thing that people scratch their heads about is how could people believe so many things that that are just patently or obviously not true or in the face of you know a lot of disconfirming evidence. And the answer is that in choosing to belong to a group that shares common common point of view, people feel better. They feel a sense of belonging and they feel less anxious, but the price they pay is, is they give up thinking for themselves. And that's kind of an extreme analogy, but I see the same thing happening, perhaps in a less extreme way, when advisors use fear to sell to their clients and, and then essentially tell them what to do. <laughs> so then I agree with you. That's Obviously, not a, a uh, that's a suboptimal way to go about doing business long term, right? And in, in law school, I think I realized that fear is a good short term motivator, but over the long term is corrosive. So, what's the right paradigm? What, what's the way that advisors should be engaging with these families? Well, if you think about information as being key to effective decision making, the question is: What's a decision to be made? What are the outcomes that people are seeking as a result of that decision? And then where does the relevant information reside? And oftentimes the relevant information resides, or some of that relevant information resides in the heads of the people in the family. This is one of the problems with with telling people what to do or giving people advice. No matter how well we think we might know a family, we will never have access to all the information that the members of that family have. So we'll never understand their context as well as they do. And so if that's the case, you have to say to yourself, well, how can I produce that information for people? And one of the best methods that we have for doing this is asking questions. So because the way our minds work, there's a lot of information that's in our heads, but it's not being used actively. When we ask a a question, we are basically getting the person to kind of search through the information that's already there and bring it into awareness. So it's now is kind of alive on the stage of working memory and it can be used. Before that, it's in storage somewhere. <laughs> and this is the nature of conflict as well. Sometimes it's internal conflict, sometimes it's interpersonal conflict. But for example, if you go back to that thing about parents wanting the next generation to be more comfortable than they were, but they don't want to spoil them. Well, one spouse or the other might focus on one or the other half of that. Presumably, they both want both things. But you might have the husband who's thinking, well, I don't want them to spoil. I don't want them to be spoiled. I want them to make it for themselves. And maybe the wife is thinking, well, yeah, but we really struggled through a lot. And I'd like them to be spared that. That not aware that both sides exist within themselves. But if you ask them, what do you want for your kids? And they start to articulate and you say, well, okay, you want this. Do you want that? You know, and you bring these things out. It's as if you're moving them closer together. Like in our heads, we, we might have two different things that we want, but we're only focused on one of them. So imagine two bar magnets lying on a table with the North Pole of one facing the South Pole of the other. They could lie on that table and nothing happens. If you nudge the ends of the magnet and you push them a little bit closer together, at some point, they suddenly jump together. And it's a little bit like that with asking questions. You say, well, what is it that you want? Okay, so you want this thing. And what else do you want? Oh, you want that thing. And so you 
bringing them both out and you're putting them together on this stage of, of working memory. And then eventually you can say, well, what thoughts do you have about how to get A and B? Or what thoughts do you have about how to make your children more comfortable without spoiling them? If you do that, people are able to come up with ideas for themselves that they would otherwise be getting from experts. And when you think about the ideas that experts commonly share, you have to scratch your head and say, well, why wouldn't somebody think of this for themselves? So one of the common prescriptions of experts is give them an allowance. <laughs> when they're young, give them an allowance so they can learn something about money. Now, you've got to ask yourself, do we really need an expert to say that? What is it that kept us from coming up with that idea for ourselves? <laughs> well, what it is, is when these two competing thoughts exist simultaneously, but the person's only aware of one side of the conflict, they're not able to resolve that conflict and it creates unpleasant feelings. And those unpleasant feelings, just like the fear we were talking about earlier, interfere with their ability to think of relatively straightforward answers to, to relatively straightforward problems. It's surprising in a way because these are people who are highly functioning, who solve all kinds of problems every day in the rest of their lives. But in certain arenas, including, you know, when it comes to things like raising their kids, they may get stumped on problems that really aren't that complicated. I like to say that the solution to these things is straightforward, but it's not simple. And the reason it's not simple is because of the disruptive effect of these unpleasant feelings that get generated. So we've covered a lot of ground from family offices to cults to, you know, it's been fun and wide ranging. But if you were going to leave the listeners with the biggest piece of advice that you could give folks that are working through this generational transition, this leadership transition, what would it be? Well, it has to do with cultivating self-awareness and understanding your own feelings and using that information as data to help you solve problems. So for example, when somebody says, tell me what to do, or tell me what you think, that from my point of view is a sign that they're having difficulty thinking about that thing for themselves. And so the best advice I would give is when you catch yourself asking somebody for advice, <laughs> you wanna train yourself to say, what's going on right now? Why is it that I'm asking for advice about this? What is it that makes it hard for me to think about this? And what in turn might make it easier for me to think about it? Paul, I want to thank you. It's been great. And you're a wealth of knowledge and resource in this space. If people are interested in connecting with you, learning more about the work you're doing, your website is really good. You have some very good content on LinkedIn. But what's the best way for them to get in touch if they're interested in learning more about your services? Yeah, so they can email me at paul at familyoffice.coach or my website is familyoffice.coach. So that's probably the simplest thing to get in touch with me. Or of course, they could give me a call. Uh, and we'll provide the content info in the show notes. And I hope the listeners have enjoyed this conversation. Please do leave a rating and a review and let us know the favorite part of my conversation with Paul. And Paul, a question that I ask folks to come on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? You know, I, I do practice meditation. Yeah, I, I learned when I was in high school, the practice of transcendental meditation. I take issue with some coaches who, in my view, place an overemphasis on meditation. And I sometimes quip, okay, when you're done meditating, then what do you do? 
<laughs> you know, in other words, if they sell meditation as a solution for problems, it's one thing to get yourself into a calm state, which creates an enhanced capacity to think things through clearly. But having done that, you do need some sort of a systematic approach. You need something like a model, like I was describing. And the model can also help with completeness. You know, when we fail to apply a model, and one reason we, we fail, when I say people apply their models inconsistently, when we're disrupted by unpleasant feelings, we're less likely to be a systematic or to use our models well. But the model can help us to, to kind of check and see if we've covered all the bases. So yes, meditation is a, a helpful precursor to the process of thinking systematically through problems and coming up with good solutions. I like it. That, that's the answer we get a lot. Well, Paul, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. I wish you the best of luck moving forward and please keep up the good work because this is a topic that a lot of people need to dig into. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.